Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dewar and this is Tyranny, Cruelty and Inhumanity, Surviving the Workhouse, The Famine in Clahine, Part 2. This episode returns to the South Tipperary town of Clahine, following from Part 1, which looked at the conflict that erupted in Clahine during the famine. Today, the focus is on Clahine Workhouse, where much of the story of the Great Hunger played out. The shocking statistic that one in three Irish people who perished in the famine, that's over 300,000 people, died in these buildings, reinforces their importance in the story. Now there's already been one episode on workhouses earlier in the series, but this show will deepen our understanding by focusing in on a Clahine. The episode also takes us through early 1849 when Ireland faces a new threat, the onslaught of cholera. Our journey through the late 1840s in today's episode follows the life of a pretty forgotten individual called Richard Burke, whose personal experience of the famine, while somewhat unusual, opens a window onto the world of workhouses in Ireland, particularly in the later years of the famine. If you enjoy this episode, there are several bonus podcasts available for show patrons who contribute $5 a month or more at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. That's patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. These look at topics like Charles Trevelyan and the one that particularly complements this show is a patrons only episode on the poor law. The next patrons only show will be released in the coming days and this is a fascinating murder mystery of sorts that looks at the post famine life of the central character of the episode Richard Burke. As a patron you will also receive early access to the show and episode guides. Each month I also give away books I no longer need. Last week, patrons Bill Tolan and Courtney Castro won copies of books on Peg Sayers and in the coming weeks, patrons will have the chance to get a copy of the classic text The Great Hunger by Cecil Woodham Smith. That's all available for you when you become a patron at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Irish podcast. Finally, it should be said that as a patron, you're a part of the team that produces these podcasts. I do all the research, recording and editing myself, but there's no secret benefactor that makes this possible. Just fans of Irish history like you who give generously to support my work. This is what makes the podcast what it is. And each week, I thank show patrons who make this possible. Today, I want to thank Gudrum Tochner, Kristen Routson braid Christine Daffern, Bruce Radke, Ian Moffat, B. Walters, Catherine Gibson, James Cusick, Gronya Kavna, Irving Ferris, Turf Kuehl and Francis Belcher. Thanks for your support, it means so much. Now we head to South Tipperary where Richard Burke was born in 1822. The summer of 1832 lingered long in the memories of people who had lived through those fateful days. Richard Burke had only been a child at the time, just ten years of age, but he would not easily forget what he had seen 
not to mention the fear and anxiety that was daily life. He had witnessed the full horrors of what some would simply refer to as the king, a fitting title for the remorseless and enduring enemy that had first appeared in Ireland in 1832. One Tipperary newspaper described it as the malignant messenger of death. In a reign of terror that would last into 1833, this so-called king claimed 30,000 lives in Ireland. This king was not William IV, the reigning monarch of the United Kingdom, or any other European royal head of state. No, this enemy was something new and deadly in Europe. It was King Cholera, a highly contagious and fatal illness that could kill within hours. The devastation the cholera epidemic that swept across the world in the 1830s caused left a deep psychological scar on the population. It was said that the Sligo woman, Charlotte Stoker's memories of the epidemic, the coffins, the large numbers of dead bodies, provided her son, Bram Stoker, with inspiration for his book Dracula. In South Tipperary, where Richard Burke lived, scores of deaths had occurred in just a few weeks in the high summer of 1832. For the ten-year-old Richard, those memories of large numbers of coffins awaiting burial and the fear of contagion was truly nightmarish. When he closed his eyes at night, there was no comfort to be had. His parents could not reassure their son that the horrors his imagination conjured up were not real. The threat posed by cholera was all too real. Indeed, no one was safe. Richard Burke was born into what might be considered a well-to-do family, but this was no guarantee of protection. While the poor were the most likely to die, cholera's highly contagious nature meant the rich died as well. While the epidemic subsided in 1833, leaving the population somewhat bewildered given the understanding of medicine was basic, people still knew from experience that a disease like this never appeared just once. The king, that was cholera, would return. It was just a matter of time. Over the coming decade, although there were occasional reports of outbreaks, these never constituted real threats. They were, by and large, isolated incidents and not the feared return of the disease on an epidemic scale. But someday, cholera would reappear. As the 1830s gave way to that epoch-changing decade in Irish history, the 1840s, of his contemporaries, it was Richard Burke who had the most to fear from a return of cholera. In many ways, he was most at risk. In the early 1840s, Richard had moved from his native home in the town of Kerr in South Tipperary to Clahean, just 10 miles away. Although he had been born into what was considered a respectable family, which in 19th century parlance translated into a family that was not poor, he was increasingly surrounded by grinding poverty through his adult life. Indeed, it was poverty and hardship that had been the initial reason Richard Burke had moved to Clahean. In the 1840s, one of Tipperary's eight workhouses, commissioned under the 1838 Poor Law, had been opened in the town. In these institutions, the destitute poor could receive food and board, even if it was under humiliating and degradating circumstances designed to discourage and deter fraudulent claims for help. However, Richard Burke had not fallen on hard times. He had come to Clahine Workhouse not in need of the institution's help, but instead seeking a job, and in the early 1840s he was appointed as workhouse schoolteacher. The pay of £15 per year was comparatively modest, but this was the first step in what would prove to be an illustrious career in the workhouse system for Richard Burke. However, while the cholera epidemic was increasingly fading to a childhood memory, Richard surely knew he was in one of the worst places imaginable in the event of another outbreak of the disease. A workhouse was a perfect breeding ground for a cholera if it reappeared. The inmates, as they were called, were often undernourished people with weakened immune systems who slept side by side in dormitories. Nevertheless, in spite of this potential risk, Richard Burke focused on his career in Clahine Workhouse and through a series of scandals and opportunities he became a senior figure in the institution relatively quickly. In 1843, Clahine Workhouse was racked by a scandalous affair when the then clerk, Geoffrey Keating, was dismissed from his post after he was caught engaged in what was called immoral conduct in the boardroom with Ellen Cahill. Keating's successor was a member of the local gentry in the Galtee Valley called Henry Langley. It was somewhat unusual for such a figure to take up a position of clerk and indeed Langley may only have done this from a sense of duty because he resigned in 1845 for unstated reasons. 
While only 23 at the time, Richard Burke, having worked as the teacher in Clahean Workhouse for a few years, now applied for the position of clerk. Later rumours claimed his influential family leaned on the panel, but Richard secured the job one way or another. Regardless of whether his appointment had been due to nepotism, he proved himself adept at what was a demanding role. As clerk, Richard was a key figure in the running of the institution. He acted as secretary to the Board of Guardians, the voluntary governing body that met weekly to oversee the running of the workhouse. He attended their meetings, taking minutes, and it often fell to Richard as clerk to implement their decisions. This gave him a wide range of responsibilities, not least communicating with the poor law commissioners who oversaw the running of the entire workhouse system across Ireland. On many issues, it was they who had the final say over the activities of the Board of Guardians and how Clahine Workhouse functioned. They made sure the Guardians followed the strict guidelines laid down by the 1838 Poor Law. With such increased responsibility came increased rewards for Richard and his salary quadrupled to £60 per year. While Richard had enjoyed a rapid rise in fortunes through the early 1840s, the much-feared news that cholera was on the march again appeared in the press in 1846. Large numbers had died in the Middle East with thousands perishing in the city of Mecca in a very serious outbreak. Worse still, the disease was spreading northwards towards the Black Sea and Europe. It was still far off, but people were well aware if news of the disease could reach Ireland, so too could cholera. For Richard Burke and Clahine Workhouse, this was, or at least should have been, cause for great concern. Not only were those under his care at risk, but also Richard himself faced dangers from contagion. However, even though he and his generation were only too well acquainted with what cholera was like firsthand, it will not come as any surprise to you that by 1846, reactions to the possibility of another epidemic were at best muted in Ireland. Few seemed to care. Was it any wonder though? After all, if cholera was the king, by 1846, Richard Burke and many like him were battling what was proving to be the emperor of death, the Great Famine. By the time word reached Ireland that cholera was on the march and moving northwestwards across the Middle East towards Europe, the Great Famine dwarfed the memories of the terrible epidemic of the 1830s. By late 1846, the situation was already far, far worse than the cholera epidemic that had inspired Dracula. Hundreds of thousands of people across County Tipperary alone were trying to survive the gauntlet of death they now faced. Starvation and the dreaded diseases typhus and typhoid, the companions to all famines, had a grip over the population. For Richard Burke he watched as these killers stalked the living and the knock-on effects could be seen in the town of Clahean itself. By 1847 Richard's daily walk to work through the streets and lanes took him through a town that was physically dying. The difference between the Clahean Richard had moved to in the early 1840s was startling. It had once been a thriving place, home to over 2,000 people. It had never been perfect, as we saw in the previous episode. Pre-famine Clahean was a deeply unequal place. The main streets may have been large stone or brick houses, but a stroll down Cockpit Lane, which led northwestwards from Clahean or Chapel Pound, which overlooked the river, brought you into what was essentially a slum, which housed those who worked in the Clahean flour mills. However, by 1847, things were getting a lot worse. After two years of famine, the town and those problems were fading into memory as Clahine seemed to be physically disintegrating under the impact of the famine. While it may have been too big to totally disappear, like some smaller villages, particularly in the West would, there was no question it would never be the same again. During the five or so years of the Great Hunger, the number of actual houses in the town declined by 20%. But even many of those, still standing, now lay eerily empty. This reflected the terrible human cost in a town where the population fell by a quarter. With each passing month another house fell silent, its thatched roof caving in and eventually maybe the door falling from the hinges, the last vestiges of what had been someone's home disappearing forever. The former occupants buried in famine graves are trying to forge a new life on a distant shore. However, this disintegrating town was just the aesthetic of famine to an extent. Each day Richard Burke witnessed far worse things in his place of work. Clahine Workhouse was a truly terrifying place by late 1847, one where the inmates measured their futures in weeks, maybe months. 
Few were concerned about a potential cholera epidemic that would take years to reach Ireland. The onset of the famine spelled trouble and major challenges not only for Claheen Workhouse but similar institutions across Ireland. Truth be told, they were not fit for purpose. Indeed, back in the 1830s, the very people who designed Ireland's network of 130 workhouses had explicitly warned they were neither designed nor suitable to handle the levels of destitution that would result from a famine. During the first two years of the Great Hunger, the British government had heeded this warning. Their major interventions in terms of famine relief had diverted the millions of starving people away from the workhouses. Whether it was the public works of 1846 or the soup kitchens of 1847, the poor were, theoretically at least, able to find food from sources other than workhouses. However, even in spite of this, the general tide of destitution that followed in the wake of the Great Famine inevitably saw an increasing number in need of workhouse help, and most poor houses, as they were known, reached capacity by Christmas 1846. The inhabitants of the workhouses at this point were widows, orphans and older people, those who, at the margins of society, struggled to survive on their own. As the numbers arriving at the workhouse door increased, officials strained under what was an ever-growing workload and resignations were increasingly common. However, Richard Burke was different. There was no evidence he was struggling. In fact, his personal experience of Black 47 seems to have been highly unusual. As the pressure on workhouse officials did increase, he was at the same time one of the few people in Claheen looking to the future. With his increased salary after his promotion, by January 1847, he was in a position to marry a local Claheen woman, Joanna Necra, the daughter of a farmer in the area. This was pretty unusual for the time, as marriage rates plummeted during the Great Famine. Indeed, Richard and Joanna's marriage was the only Catholic ceremony in the parish of Shanrahan in January 1847, and only one of 14 during the entire year. By comparison, there had been 40 or so marriages in 1841. Not only was death, disease and starvation taking its toll, but emigration was also a factor which stopped people marrying. Those who were thinking about forging new lives overseas did not want to establish roots in Ireland. In the last episode, we heard David Keane and Claheen talking about how his sister Alice had no interest in marrying in Ireland. Keane had reflected, no inducement would make her marry here. Of course, it would be folly to think of it. While Richard bucked this trend, becoming one of the very few to marry in Claheen, there was no question that the world around him was falling apart. Furthermore, he must have had a niggling concern somewhere at the back of his mind because every so often newspapers reported how cholera was making its way northwestward, each week inching ever closer to Ireland. While Richard Burke's personal life was very different to what most were enduring during the famine, there's no question his post in the workhouse was an extremely difficult job. A few weeks after Richard married Joanna Necra, Claheen Workhouse nudged past its capacity with 669 people in the institution, many of them children. However, in the coming months, the staff and officials were still able to cope despite this overcrowding. While the famine situation remained dire, the increase in people arriving at the workhouse started to level off as soup kitchens opened by the government in the spring of 1847 started to take effect. It was only the truly desperate who would turn to the workhouse in this situation. However, this was only the calm before the storm. In August, those soup kitchens were closed and Lord John Russell's Liberal government adopted a more radical and dangerous approach, one they had outlined earlier in the year. They now more or less proclaimed the famine at an end and wound down their relief efforts. As of September 1847, Ireland's 130 poor law unions, the organisations that operated the workhouses, were now responsible for alleviating any remaining distress. However, the famine was nowhere near over. In Claheen, Richard Burke and the Board of Guardians actually faced what seemed like an impossible situation. Thousands, perhaps tens of thousands, depended on them for survival and a similar situation existed across most poor law unions. As the winter evenings of 1847 closed in around Claheen Workhouse, the weekly meetings of the Board of Guardians, held each Monday in the workhouse, testified to an increasingly grave situation. With each passing week, the workhouse faced a more and more complex problem as the numbers needing food to stay alive increased. 
Richard Burke, as clerk, acted as minute taker for the meetings of the guardians and catalogued what was a litany of insurmountable problems. The issues facing Clahine and most workhouses could be broken down into three key problems. The size and capacity of the workhouses, the government regulations which limited what action they could take, and last but certainly not least, money. At this point, cholera was not really a concern, but it would be. The first of the issues facing the Board of Guardians, the size of the workhouse, was probably the easiest one to solve. Clahean Poorhouse was one of Ireland's smaller such institutions. It had been designed and built only seven years earlier, but pre-famine Ireland seemed a world away and it was hopelessly inadequate to handle the needs of the destitute in late Black 47. The institution, with a catchment area of the wider Galti Valley and its population of 50,000 people, was designed at capacity to accommodate around 500 people or 1% of the population. However, in late 1847, there was a very real possibility that up to 20% of the population could potentially need help. But by October that year, the workhouse was so overcrowded, officials had no option but to turn people away. While additional space was created in Clahine by converting storage space into dormitories, in November 1847 a much more ambitious plan was enacted. Richard Burke was instructed to rent a disused building in Tincurry, about six miles north of Clahine. This would be in time used to accommodate the children in the workhouse, a move which almost doubled the capacity of the institution. The other two problems, government regulation and money, were far more difficult to resolve and these were actually fraught with risk. Indeed, navigating these issues set Richard and his colleagues on a collision course with the poor law commissioners and, indeed, their political masters, the Liberal government in London. While they could double the capacity of the workhouse, no matter how much it was extended, it would never be able to accommodate all those needing help. In Clahine alone, there was around 10,000 people who would starve if they did not receive aid in late 1847. That said, the solution was obvious. Rather than bring them all into the workhouse, it would be easier to feed them through soup kitchens, just like those the government had operated earlier in the year. This was, in many ways, the best solution Many of the poor themselves did not want to enter the workhouse, nor did they need to. They had their own homes, so all they needed was food. While this solution might seem straightforward, workhouse officials had to be very careful they did not contravene the poor law, the legislation which restricted what they could and couldn't do. Obsessed with the idea that the poor could not be trusted, the original 1838 Poor Law had expressly forbidden boards of guardians from operating soup kitchens or giving out food parcels to anyone not residing in the workhouse. The logic, as I say, behind this had been the idea that if they forced everyone into the workhouse, this would minimise abuse of the system. However, by 1847, even the Liberal government recognised that they needed to loosen this somewhat and Richard Burke and his colleagues were allowed to establish soup kitchens and give out food parcels, but this was constrained and hamstrung by numerous conditions. Initially, at least, only those deemed vulnerable in society, children, widows, the old and the infirmed, could receive what was called outdoor relief, that's food and soup kitchens. But those termed the able-bodied, essentially anyone who could work, had to enter a workhouse to get help. This was a measure the government believed would minimise abuse of the system. This policy was disastrous though. Because the elderly, the sick and the most vulnerable were the people who were in the workhouses, they had to be evicted to make way for those who could work. These vulnerable people, after eviction, could receive food from soup kitchens, but most of them were homeless. Meanwhile, The people who could work but now had to go into the workhouse had to give up their homes. This utterly ludicrous situation was motivated from the fear that people who had endured nearly three years of famine would try and scam some extra food. While these issues made life unnecessarily difficult for Richard Burke and his colleagues, it was possible to navigate around these laws. However, the third problem was not really possible to solve. This was an eye-watering a black hole at the heart of the union's finances. When the government shifted all famine relief onto local poor law unions which operated workhouses, this meant that the money used to fund this relief was raised through local taxes. However, as we have seen in the last episode, the economy in Ireland, including Clahine, had collapsed. 
David Keane, in the last episode, described the economy there in these terms in a letter he wrote in 1848. If I were in want of a situation tomorrow, I would search this whole country and not meet a vacancy. In a word, there is no business at all doing. While collecting taxes in this situation was difficult, the government made the financial situation in Clahine much worse by calling in a debt in late 1847. This was a loan that had resulted from the soup kitchens which had been operating earlier in the summer. While the government had fronted the money for their soup kitchens, they insisted that 50% of the money spent had to be repaid by the local board of guardians. In Cahin, this amounted to £7,704, a huge sum for the time. The government officials also insisted on payment and showed little understanding or leniency for the situation facing Cahin in late 1847. When the Board of Guardians struggled to find the money, the Poor Law Commissioners in Dublin used legislation passed by the government to essentially seize control of the Clahine Workhouse bank account. No more money could be spent until an arrangement about how the debt of £7,700 was going to be repaid was agreed. This meant that any cheques issued by the workhouse to pay for food would bounce. Essentially, the workhouse and the other activities of the Poor Law Union in Clahine would grind to a halt. To ensure the treasurer of Clahine Workhouse did not ignore this command, he was from that point on held personally responsible. So if money was spent, he himself would have to repay it. This was a really incredible move. One member of the Board of Guardians even suggested they should just basically close the institution and let the government sort out the problem. This didn't happen. Eventually, in late 1847, negotiations between the Clohean officials and the Poor Law Commissioners in Dublin took place over the repayment of the loan, and something of a compromise seems to have been worked out. It should come as no surprise, though, that given they were faced with such immediate problems, almost everyone seems to have forgotten about cholera, which, with each passing week, was moving closer and closer to Ireland. By Christmas 1847, the disease had penetrated the borders of Europe and was ripping through the capital of the Ottoman Empire, the city of Constantinople, or, as we know it today, Istanbul. Keen observers of history might have noted that exactly 400 years earlier, in 1347, another disease had entered Europe through the same city. That had been the Black Death. Cholera was nowhere near as deadly as the plague, but this was an ill omen, if ever there was one. As cholera infiltrated the streets and lanes of Constantinople, a Tipperary native living near Clohine in the town of Clamel, using the pen name Argus, wrote to the Cork Examiner, warning of the dangers. I am very sorry to encroach on your valuable space, but the importance of my subject must be my excuse. The cholera is approaching with giant strides. Still, there is no sanitary measures taken as yet. Our lanes and alleys are wallowing in actual filth, which at present generates disease and then spreads and propagates by its tainted atmosphere. However, given the situation in workhouses was unimaginably worse, this warning from the writer Argus proved an inaudible cry into the darkness that was Ireland in 1847. The authorities were struggling to even feed the living and bury the dead, let alone worry about this new problem. Indeed, the economic catastrophe that the Great Famine had unleashed was their greatest concern that Christmas. As each group in society tried to protect their interests, the most vulnerable, the starving poor were losing out and turning up at the door of Clohine Workhouse in greater and greater numbers. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. At the outset of the famine, landlords as a class in Irish society were deeply vulnerable to an economic crisis in Ireland. They derived much of their income from rents. So as the famine deepened, dragging even those who had once been comfortable into poverty, this created major problems for these once powerful families. As early as 1846, large numbers of tenants began defaulting on their rent, having to make that very difficult decision between paying rent on the one hand and buying food on the other. 1847 had only seen this crisis deteriorate. While rental intakes fell, landlords also faced an increasing tax bill because they had to pay the taxes which funded workhouses for all their tenants who had plots that were valued at less than £4. In this context, many, but it should be said not all landlords, adopted a ruthless approach. The easiest solution was to evict these poorer tenants and cut down their tax bill. To the same end, the landlords also successfully lobbied for legislation called the Gregory Clause or the Quarter Acre Clause to be passed through Parliament. This has been covered in the series before, but I will summarise it here. In short, this stipulated that a new test of destitution in Ireland from September 1847 was one quarter of an acre of land. So if you owned or rented anything more than this, you were not considered destitute and therefore you were automatically disqualified from receiving famine aid. That means you couldn't enter a workhouse or even get food at a soup kitchen. The intention here was clear. Landlords were trying to make tenants choose between receiving famine relief and giving up their homes. Basically, they were hoping this legislation would essentially get the tenants to evict themselves. In Clohine, the largest landlord in the region, Lord Lismore, was among the more understanding. He did reduce rents by around 35% and he proudly proclaimed he did not evict his tenants. However, a rental ledger kept by Edwin Taylor, his land agent, survives today and it seems the Gregory Clause was having an effect on his estate. The ledger shows that life in and around Clohine in the parish of Shanrahan had been relatively sedentary in the decades before the famine insofar as tenants rarely left their property either by eviction or voluntarily surrendering their leases. However, in 1847 and 1848, things began to change. A new trend, albeit small, emerged, where the agent scribbled, given up, across the bottom of some tenants' accounts, meaning the individual concerned had voluntarily given up their lands. There is no further detail about what was happening, and while some of these people may well have been emigrating, some were unquestionably giving up their lands so they could enter the workhouse. In the last episode, we heard David Keane describe how once comfortable farmers were reduced to this. In fact, all classes feel the pressure. Farmers who held 30 acres of land were obliged to take refuge in the poorhouse to avoid this terrible fate. This process only increased the numbers dependent on Clohine Workhouse. Each week, Richard Burke saw these bedraggled figures arrive at the workhouse door with no homes and little hope, looking for help. For those who tried to keep their farms, they faced terrible situations. They were cut off from receiving famine relief. In early February 1848, the Tipperary Free Press, a newspaper in the locality, received a disturbing report from a priest in Ballyporeen, a town at the western end of the Galtee Valley. Incidentally, former US President Ronald Reagan's great-grandfather was living in Ballyporeen at this time. The report from the priest read as follows. I called this week to visit a sick member of a family of eight children with a widowed mother and to my horror I found the hungered creatures feeding on horse flesh which they found in an adjoining field. This letter prompted an investigation which discovered a local official from the workhouse had in fact known of the family's destitution. However, this poor family had been in possession of a farm of one and a half acres so they could not legally receive aid. After trying to hold on to their meagre farm to avoid homelessness, they had ended up eating horse flesh. I don't think we can really blame the likes of Richard Burke or the Board of Guardians of Clohine Poor Law Union for this. Their actions were severely limited by the poor law and indeed the authorities in Clohine Workhouse did show themselves as more innovative than most in their approach to the crisis facing Ireland. They frequently passed resolutions on how they felt the poor law system could function better. 
On one occasion, a member even suggested the novel idea that Irish workhouses could be converted into factories where the poor would receive wages for their work while also improving the Irish economy. These measures needed government support, which was never forthcoming. They did, however, carry out some changes on a local level, which they could enact themselves. They leased 12 acres of land near the second workhouse they had opened in Tincurry, and in early 1848 they hired an agricultural instructor to supervise the boys in growing vegetables. This scheme received widespread praise in the Irish newspapers through 1848, and many other workhouses followed suit. However, while the workhouse authorities in Clahine deserve some credit, the podcast so far has exclusively given their view on what was happening. Next, I want to give the perspective of someone who was actually an inmate in Clahin workhouse during the famine, because the picture that he presents is very, very different. This person was called Michael Doody. Even though Michael Doody spent a large amount of time in the same building as Richard Burke, their experiences of Clahin workhouse could not have been more different. While Burke was involved in the running of the institution and he saw his circumstances improve throughout the famine with increased wages, Michael Doody saw his life fall apart. Doody had been well educated and had even for a time trained as a doctor. Then his circumstances changed. Sometime before the famine he had to give up his medical career and instead trained as a cobbler, working in what he called a respectable establishment. However, that trade certainly left Doody at greater risk when the Great Famine struck. As the economic catastrophe that accompanied the Great Hunger unfolded, Michael Doody lost his job and eventually had no option but to turn to Clahine Workhouse with his family. He was utterly horrified by what he found inside the workhouse, where life was truly dystopian. In April 1848, he provided a harrowing account of his experiences, revealing a place that was very different from the institution depicted in the minutes of the meetings of the Board of Guardians. While their meetings discussed the major issues such as admissions to the building, money spent, etc., they left much of the day-to-day work of operating the workhouse to inmates who were elevated to positions of authority, but this proved to be disastrous. These people frequently starving themselves abused their power. Michael Doody would reveal the horrific situation in a letter he read before the Board of Guardians. Sirs, the workhouse of the Clahine Union is intended as an asylum for the destitute poor of the neighbourhood. The exterior of it is grand and inviting, but the interior is a scene of tyranny, cruelty and inhumanity which is destructive to human life. The portion of the food and drink given to each person daily, is not sufficient for one meal, which I would swear an oath, and that small portion is fraudulently distributed. Some are gluttonously fed, and many are perishing by lingering hunger. This practice is so managed by the paupers themselves that the master cannot investigate the conduct of a rude, stupid house of paupers who are terrified by hunger and death. The poor children committed to your care are notoriously perished, for the pauper nurses sell and eat the very small portion of nourishment which you offer them for whisky and other purposes. From the 1st of March until the 1st of April, I have seen 6 to 12 children dead daily. On the 23rd of March or thereabouts, I have seen 16 dead together, 14 of whom were helpless children. I have seen fathers and mothers who could not find their children dead or alive. I attempted twice to report this inhumanity to you, but you refused to listen to me. Michael Doody also added to this. My children were in hospital and I occasionally went to see them. Having observed the gross neglect of the nurses, I sat up with them all night and had an opportunity to see what passed. I have seen the bread and milk allowed to the patients sold by the nurses to other paupers. I have also seen whiskey drank in this house by the nurses. Such complaints were not unique to Clahine. Kilkenny Workhouse had a very similar problem resulting from staff abusing their position. This may have been the product of the inevitable survival mentality that had set in where people were increasingly looking out for themselves and themselves alone. In what was a pretty damning indictment of the guardians of the workhouse, however, they showed little interest in Michael Doody's testimony. Despite the fact it was corroborated by several other inmates in the workhouse, the Board of Guardians chose not to believe him and did not act to stop these practices. 
And further to Michael Dooley's testimony, there was also alarming factual evidence to suggest there was something very seriously wrong inside Claheen Workhouse at the time. The workhouse statistics produced by Richard Burke in that very week that Michael Doody testified showed they should have been deeply concerned. There were 454 people in the Claheen workhouse and an additional 452 in the auxiliary workhouse at Tincurry. While neither were heavily overcrowded, the death rate was alarmingly high. Out of a total of 906 people, 18 had died in that week alone. When compared to the far larger North Dublin workhouse, the seriousness of this problem becomes evident. The North Dublin Workhouse, an institution with 3,300 people, incurred only 17 deaths, a lower figure than Claheen, a workhouse with only 906 people. However, the guardians of Claheen ignored the testimony, as I've said, of Michael Doody, who was presenting clear reasons why this might be happening. Now, it does appear that the guardians of Claheen, while perhaps conscientious in a general sense, had no interest in the day-to-day lives of those under their care. I think this ties into something I raised in part one of the Claheen show. The class difference in the people who ran the institution versus those who took refuge inside it. The poor, as I mentioned in that episode, were often viewed with a patronising attitude that in some cases verged on explicit hostility. Some considered the poor to be responsible for their own misfortune. And I think this culture and attitude allowed the Board of Guardians to at times treat them with cruel indifference. While Claheen Workhouse battled with an extraordinarily high death rate in April 1848, there was little hope on the horizon because around that time, cholera had taken hold in London. It was now only a matter of time before it would find its way to Ireland where the weakened population would struggle to put up a fight. An outbreak and its disastrous consequences in famine-stricken Ireland clearly now could not be averted. It was only a matter of time, weeks, maybe months, but it was inevitable. Before we look at its arrival, I want to get a sense of where Ireland as a whole was at. So we're going to zoom out from Claheen and look at Ireland in that summer of 1848. In April 1848, Richard Burke compiled information on Claheen Workhouse, which was sent to the Poor Law Commissioners in Dublin. They then added this to statistics gathered from across Ireland, creating a picture of how the famine was progressing. Claheen would emerge in this picture as slightly worse than average, but nowhere near as bad as some parts of the West. Among the information compiled was the number of people receiving famine aid. The national figure revealed that 10% of the Irish population as a whole were still in need of aid in April 1848. In Claheen, the local figure stood at over 15%, while further west in Newcastle, in Limerick, it was a shocking 36%. While the British government claimed the famine was over, this was clearly not the case. That following summer of 1848 provided little hope on the horizon, particularly for rural Ireland. On August 8, the Poor Law Commissioners in Dublin had written to all Poor Law Unions across the country asking for reports on how the potato crop was faring. A decent crop was integral to the end of the famine and there had been worrying reports that blight had reappeared in parts of Ireland in July. Now, while I could not find Richard Burke's response to that appeal for information, the clerk in the neighbouring Poor Law Union of Cashel, just 20 miles away, presented a dire picture from South Tipperary. He said, I regret that the report I have to make is most unfavourable. During the last week, the disease has increased to a very great extent and there is no part of the union in which it has not appeared. This reflected a trend in many parts of the country. Blight had returned and while it was not as severe as the terrible failure of the potato crop in 1846, the harvest would be poor. The famine would continue. However, by 1848, it should be said, the problem was no longer a lack of food. That stage of the great hunger had long passed. It is true that in the terrible winter of 1846, after the harvest had been exported, there was a chronic shortage of food in some parts of Ireland. However, this had eased when huge quantities of maize had been imported from the USA but the poor simply did not have the money to buy this substitute for potatoes. 
While the potato crop failed in the late summer of 1848, condemning large parts of Ireland to a fourth year of famine, major regional variations were now starting to emerge in the picture. It had always been more severe in the West, but by 1848, three distinct zones emerged. In the East, in Dublin and Belfast, there was evidence that the worst had passed, and dare we say it, after four years, the famine might be coming to an end. Urban areas where the poor could find employment naturally facilitated a faster recovery. A second region in the Midlands, which included Clohean, saw a certain degree of improvement from the worst days of Black 47, but as we have seen, the famine was certainly not over. Then there was a third region in the far west where there was little or no improvement. While an optimist, perhaps, could draw some hope from the fact that the famine was starting to end in some parts of Ireland, all three of these zones were soon to be hit by a new problem, the long-feared return of King Cholera. Through 1848, newspapers reported that cholera had reached European capital city after capital city. Berlin, Rome, Paris, all were laid low. Cholera finally returned to Ireland in December 1848, first striking in Belfast, presumably making the short crossing from Scotland across the North Channel from the port of Glasgow where the disease had thrived in the city's poverty-stricken neighbourhoods. Having established a beachhead in Ireland, it was only a matter of time before it spread across the entire island. However, even when it had actually reached Ireland, workhouse officials still could not prioritise defence against this deadly threat. And no one knew this better than Richard Burke himself. By September 1848, he had actually left his position in Clohine to take up a new role. Over the previous few years, he had proven himself well able to handle the stressful work in the poorhouse and he received what was a promotion to an even more challenging position. While his wife Joanna remained in Clohine, Richard was appointed as one of the two vice-guardians of Ennestymond Poor Law Union in County Clare, which was one of the worst affected places in Ireland. It had been labelled a distressed union where the government accepted they would have to intervene even after 1847 when they had wound down their relief efforts. In many of these distressed unions, the poor law commissioners in Dublin seized control, dismissed the board of guardians, which they deemed were unable to perform their duties and replaced them with vice guardians. When Richard took up his role as vice guardian, he found Ennestymon was a region on its knees. Writing to the poor law commissioners in Dublin, he described the situation in Ennestymon. 14,530 persons are at present in receipt of relief in this union. By reason of the number of evictions or persons voluntarily surrendering possession of their land or labouring classes daily disemployed, the relief lists exhibit a gradual increase since last November. This led to massive overcrowding in the workhouses, creating very dangerous conditions. Excavation and analysis of a mass grave of famine victims buried in the grounds of Kilkenny Workhouse has shown that many people were suffering from scurvy in the later years of the famine. Disease was a grave risk in such a malnourished population and ever before cholera could reach Ennestymon, what was called famine fever, typhus or typhoid, was making short work of the weakened population as the death rate became as bad and even worse than it had been in the dark days of Black 47. When Richard Burke first arrived in Ennestymon in September, the death rate in the workhouse had been in single figures, usually just a couple each week. However, by November, this had dramatically risen to around 30 deaths per week. This continued to rise through December until it reached its worst level of 89 people in the first week of January 1849. This was far worse than the cholera epidemic of the 1830s. Now, this astonishing figure is among the worst recorded death rates anywhere in Ireland during the entire famine, a terrible indication of the serious nature of the crisis which still prevailed in the West. One newspaper reported that the coffin contractor supplied the Ennestymon workhouse with no less than 270 coffins in the space of a few weeks. Tragically, death on a large scale had become so normalised after four years of famine that it became the source of gallows humour, with the journalist in this question joking that the high death rate was one way to sort out the issue of overcrowding in the poorhouse. The staff in Ennestymon, including Richard Burke, were now struggling themselves as they were starting to fall ill. 
the master of the workhouse, contracted typhus and died on December the 9th, 1848. The matron died just over a week later. With people dying at an extraordinary rate, the threat of cholera must have seemed minor. But this lethal illness would not spare people, regardless of what they had endured or what diseases they had already survived. Life was hard and cruel. Indeed, the outbreak of cholera, which had petrified a generation in the 1830s, was now the latest in a long line of starvation, fair crops and disease, all hardships compounded by the heartless reactions of politicians and landlords. It was somewhat inevitable, really, that Richard Burke himself fell ill in early January 1849. Having spent four years working in poor houses during a famine, it was difficult to avoid disease. However, his symptoms were somewhat different to the typhus, typhoid and measles, the illnesses that had been raging through the workhouse. They were recognisable though. People had seen them before. Richard Burke was one of the first people in the west of Ireland to contract cholera. For days he would battle against King Cholera in Ennistymon many thinking he was about to become just another statistic. Perhaps it was his luck, or more likely, his comfortable circumstances, which helped his immune system, but he did survive and was able to return to his duties. However, across Ireland, there were hundreds of thousands who had survived four years of starvation and disease who now awaited the hammer of cholera to fall on them. Thousands would not survive. While this will be central to the next show as we move through 1849, I just want to finish with a few words about Richard Burke. In the early 1850s, he moved to Waterford City where he took up a position in the workhouse there, eventually earning £250 per year. His remarkable career in workhouse service, however, came to a shocking end in 1862 when at the age of 40, he was executed in Waterford. Now, the story of that execution is going to be the focus of my next patrons-only podcast. You can get that at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Irish podcast. Until next time, Sloan. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.